everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. In this podcast with Dr. Randy Frost, we continue the conversation that we began in podcast 15, where we cover the treatment issues involved in working with hoarders. For the past decade, psychologists Randy Frost and Gail Steckety have studied hoarders, people who compulsively acquire a lot of stuff and then have difficulty discarding the objects they obtain. In their book, Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things, the two researchers detail how compulsive behaviors drive sufferers to pile objects throughout their homes. Illustrating the phenomenon through several case studies, Frost and Steckety identify the key traits of a hoarder, detailing the underlying causes and explaining how to minimize the effects of the emotionally exhausting disorder. Treatment is hampered by the fact that hoarders often don't realize the extent of their problems even when confronted with photographs of the chaos in their cluttered houses. Frost explains that there's a phenomenon we refer to as clutter blindness. Most of us have this to some degree. Maybe we don't notice all the appliances on our countertops or all the cords for our multiple electronics. But let's have Dr. Frost himself tell you about treatment. Dr. Randy Frost is professor of psychology at Smith College and an internationally known expert on obsessive-compulsive disorders and compulsive hoarding, as well as the pathology of perfectionism. Dr. Frost received his Ph.D. from the University of Kansas in 1977 and is the Harold and Elsa Cipolla Israel Professor of Psychology at Smith College. He has published more than 140 scientific articles and book chapters on hoarding and related topics. His work has been funded by the Obsessive Compulsive Foundation and the National Institute of Mental Health. Frost serves on the Scientific Advisory Board of the International OCD Foundation. He has co-authored several books on hoarding, and his research has been featured on a variety of television and radio news shows, including 2020 Downtown, Good Morning America, The Today Show, Dateline, National Public Radio's General News, as well as the award-winning program, The Infinite Mind, BBC News, and the Canadian broadcasting companies, The Nature of Things. He has also consulted with various hoarding task forces, including those in New York, Ottawa, Canada, and Northampton, Massachusetts, and has given hundreds of lectures and workshops on the topic in the United States and internationally. Dr. Frost, what I really want to know is what got you interested in this subject? Oh, well, I I really got involved in this a little bit by accident. I was teaching a course uh, at Smith on obsessive-compulsive disorder, 
And one of the students asked me about hoarding because she had grown up in New York City and her mother always um, admonished her to clean her room or she would end up like the Collier Brothers, which is a famous uh, hoarding case in New York. And so she asked me about it. And, and at the time, this is back in 1990 or 91, something like that. And and I said, well, n- there isn't much information out there about it. I can, no one's ever published anything on hoarding. I think there are a couple of case studies, but it didn't, it didn't amount to more than a paragraph uh, description for each case. And so what I told her was we could put an ad in the newspaper and try to find someone to interview to see if we could learn a little bit more about it. So we put an ad in the Northampton paper and it ended up with over 100 telephone calls. Oh, my goodness. It's not a big population there either. Right. And that was the start. Uh, and, and at that point, it, it became sort of like a runaway train after that. We, we used those cases and published the first paper in 93. And once that paper hit, hit um, then we started getting all kinds of uh, requests for information. And, and, and that's when our research really began. It's just so amazing that there's so many people who are these severe hoarders. Well, that's right. And and the, the epidemiological estimates right now range from anywhere from 2 to 6% of the population. And uh, that's really enormous. Uh, when, uh, hoarding was originally thought to be sort of a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder, but uh, it's clear now that it's, that it's not, that it's something quite different. And if you look at the frequency with which it occurs, obsessive compulsive disorder occurs somewhere between 1% and 2.5% of the population. But hoarding looks like it's um, up closer to double that. Well, tell us about the Collier brothers. I mean, this is just such an amazing story. Well, they were an interesting pair. They were sons of a very wealth, very well-off uh, family in New York City. Back in the early 1900s, one of the well-established clans, really, in New York. They had a a grandfather who was a shipping magnate and and someone else who – another relative who put together the the shipyards in New York City. And and so they were really quite wealthy. They grew up um, in a kind of um, culture where they they were – Pampered, they were given good education. Uh, um, uh, Homer Collier was Phi Beta Kappa at Columbia and uh, went to law school, became an admiralty lawyer, although he didn't really practice much. Uh, Langley Collier was uh, uh, also graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Columbia and was an engineer uh, and a concert pianist. At one point, he debuted on at, in Carnegie Hall. But as they grew older, they grew more reclusive, and they began collecting things. And by the time they died in 1947, their house was so full that uh, there was fear that um, it would collapse if they didn't start getting rid of things from the top rather than the bottom of the house. Now, the the story of their discovery was quite remarkable as well. uh, The police got a call that there was a dead body in the Collier mansion. They don't really know who made the call, but when the police arrived, they couldn't get into the house, and they spent a couple of hours trying to get in. Finally, they, they decided that they should chop down the front door, so they got an axe and chopped it down, and and there was so much stuff piled behind the door that they couldn't get in that way either. So finally, they called uh, the fire department and got a ladder truck in and, and ended up getting into the second-floor window. And when they did, they could only crawl 
above all the stuff within about two feet of the ceiling to get into the into the room. And there they discovered the body of Homer Collier in a little opening in the room. And they decided that they had to find Langley. They didn't know where Langley was. And, of course, they couldn't search that because it was absolutely packed. There were tunnels throughout the house. Some of the tunnels were booby-trapped. Um, some of them were, were like mole holes where you, you take the, the stuff in front of you and put it behind you in order to travel through the house. Uh, so it was quite, quite remarkable. They started uh, taking stuff out of the house. As I said, they had to start at the top and punch a hole in the roof in order to pull stuff out. All the while that they were doing this, they'd pull stuff out and throw it down um, uh, off the off the roof of the house, and uh, thousands of people gathered because there were there were all these rumors about them hoarding millions of dollars. So many people were expecting some windfall to come flying off the roof. Um, and it, it, about three weeks, they they continued do that, doing this, uh, unpacking the house. Uh, Looking for Langley. At one point, uh, the the in search for Langley got so intense that they someone thought they saw him on a subway, and they stopped the train before it got to the station so they could search for him. But as it turned out, after three weeks of searching, they found Langley's body not more than ten feet away from uh, Homer, where they found Homer. He had evidently gotten caught in his own booby trap, and some things came down and crushed him, and and he died. And I think he died first, and he was taking care of Homer, who was blind and and most for the most part paralyzed. And so they think that Homer died sometime later, uh, probably knowing what happened to Langley. You don't know whether to laugh or cry. Yeah, it's quite a remarkable story and a sad story. And the interesting thing is we, we see reports like this every year from various places around the country where people – uh, are discovered in their in their homes or, or have been killed by their the stuff in their homes. So it sounds like a, a really outlandish story, but it's not an unfamiliar one. We're in the middle of an interview with Dr. Randy Frost, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. Well, let's talk about treatment. What would be the, the goals of treating well, I don't think anybody could have worked with the Collier brothers, could they? Well, it depends. Now, the, what we what we know about treatment is there there really are three different kinds of problems that people who hoard have, and all three of them have to be addressed. The first is an excessive level of acquisition that people who hoard bring in much more stuff than um, everyone else. And they do it in peculiar, particular ways, I should say. Uh, they they tend to suffer from compulsive buying urges. They tend to feel compelled to pick up free things that they might find useful. And so one facet of treatment has to focus on the acquisition piece. A second facet of treatment has to focus on the difficulty discarding. People who who hoard have filled their homes, and when they try to throw things away, they can't do it. There, there's something getting in their way. And most often, what happens when they pick up something and think about throwing it away is that all the potential of that object begins to occur to them. And that those reasons why they want to save this object, those those values, if you will, that they give to this object, are the things that prevent them from throwing it away. So 
so one of the things that has to happen in treatment is we have to address those beliefs about possessions that, that get them sort of stuck on these possessions. And the third feature is really uh, something a little bit different, and that is a, a level of disorganization that occurs uh, with respect to these possessions. So for many of us, we probably would be described as people who acquire too much and throw away too little. But as long as we have the capacity to keep all this stuff organized, then it's not really a problem. But for people with serious hoarding problems, it's not just acquisition and difficulty discarding, but they somehow lost the ability to keep all this stuff organized. And what happens then is it ends up in the middle of the room. And that's when it begins to interfere with their ability to use their living spaces in the way in which they were designed. And that's when it begins to to create dysfunction in the, in the form of, of health and safety kinds of concerns. So the, the, the things we have to focus on in treatment are those three things, acquisition, difficulty, discarding, and, and disorganization. Which do you hit first? I mean, is the main goal here to clean, to get the house cleaned out? I guess I'm asking you about the goals of treatment. Well, yeah, ultimately what you're concerned about is, is creating living space. But in terms of treatment, you know, we we could go in to someone's home and clear it out and, and, and create living space for them. And many people have tried to do that with people with hoarding problems. The problem is that this kind of intervention is only temporary. And within short order, uh, usually within a, a, a matter of months, the home is full again. And you're sort of back to square one. So in, in terms of treatment, the goal is really to change the behavior toward objects. And that's all three of these behaviors, excessive acquisition, difficulty discarding, and this disorganization. So because it, unless we change their behaviors with respect to these things, the clutter is going to come back right away. So decluttering, we do decluttering as a part of the treatment, but really the, the, the goal is not so much to declutter the space, but to teach the person how to interact differently with the, the, their possessions. Have you had much success? Well, we have in a, a couple of different ways. We, we, we have a, a therapy manual, cognitive behavior therapy manual, that we've tested uh, against uh, a weightless control and had some pretty good luck with it. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% of the cases are significantly improved as a function of treatment. There are some challenges. People have great difficulty staying motivated to do this, to work through the full course of treatment, uh, and that's a, that's, a, that's a real problem. Also, even when they're through treatment and significantly better, there still tends to be this, this kind of um, uh, attachment to things that's difficult to break. So many people, even when they're successful through treatment, still have to work at maintaining the gains that they've made. Now, as it turns out, we, we're um, uh, in the first round for uh, developing this treatment. We developed it as an individual treatment for hoarding. And now we're working on uh, applying it in a group format to make it a little more accessible, a little less expensive. And we're also exploring other ways of um, getting people to work on this problem. 
And one of the things we've been doing is is helping people set up peer-run support groups. And we've had some pretty good luck with this. Now, these are different than sort of classic support groups where people come and, uh, to, to be emotionally supported. These are uh, workshops. We, we call this the uh, Buried in Treasures Workshop. Oh, that's a great name. Our current version of it is 20 weeks long. There are 15 sessions. Each session focuses on a different chapter in our book. We have a, a self-help book called Buried in Treasures. And so each week focuses on a different chapter of that book. And there are activities, there are exercises that people do in these groups. And we've, ha- we've had a tremendous uh, success so far. In, in uh, the, the study we've just completed is one where we're comparing how well people did to people on a wait list. Uh, just like we did with the uh, cognitive behavior therapy trial, and found significant declines compared to a wait list, and they were not not too far off from what we get during uh, individual cognitive behavior therapy. So this is another strategy we have, partly because there there just aren't enough people out there, enough therapists who know how to treat this problem to to be able to handle the volume of cases that we see. Do you train therapists? We don't have an official training program. We we do train. We do some training. Both uh, my colleague Gail Steckty and myself, and and some of our other colleagues, do workshops in various places. The International OCD Foundation has a um, a conference every year, and we do workshops there for for clinicians on treating hoarding, as well as uh, in between times going out whenever uh, people ask us to come in and do some training. I'd like to go through the manual with you, but before we do that, I just have a couple of questions about other kind of treatments. What about medication? Well, we don't know a lot about medication and its effects for hoarding. And early on, the uh, findings suggested that medications might not work very well for hoarding. And more recently, there have been a couple of studies suggesting that maybe there there are, is some benefit from, from using medications. But it's very early in the process, and we need much more research to be able to draw a firm conclusion about that. You're really like the leading poncho in this subject, aren't you? I mean... Well, I, I, I find this an absolutely fascinating behavior, a uh, fascinating disorder, and, and one that the, the people are just so interesting to me. They have a kind of a view of the world, at least of the of the physical world, that's different. And and in some ways, uh, I think of, of what they experience as maybe a, a special kind of gift that they have. And that gift is to see the potential in the physical world that the rest of us don't. And that happens in all kinds of different ways, including just the aesthetics of the physical world. In our book, Stuff, uh, we, 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 this is a book uh, about hoarding. It's got a lot of interesting cases in it. And there, there are folks in there um, who are just r- remarkable in their ability to see the aesthetic value of physical things, this, the attention they pay to uh, shape and size. One of the main characters in Stuff is a woman named Irene. And I, I worked with Irene for many months on her hoarding problem. And, and just an example of this phenomenon, I, I showed up one day and her eyes lit up and she said, I have to show you something. And she went off into the other room and came back with a large, clear plastic bag filled with bottle caps. And she said, look at these bottle caps. Aren't they beautiful? The shape and the color and the texture. 
And it's that kind of attention to the unique features of objects that is so remarkable in these folks and an appreciation of the, the physicality of these things. So in some ways, maybe this is a, maybe this is some kind of a gift, but, but it's a gift that's also a curse in that they, they, they're so tied to these things that they allow them to interfere with their ability to live. And that's what makes it so so fascinating. And the, the other thing it, that makes it interesting is that their view of possessions and, and the kind of special qualities they have really is is not terribly different than the rest of us. Possessions have a magical quality to all of us that 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 ticket stub from a special concert that we're saving because of the memories of that concert. That really is a magical ticket stub because. There's nothing in the physical properties of that ticket stub that gives it that value. The value is some kind of essence that that ticket stub has that we give it. And that essence is really just in our head. It's not in the ticket stub itself. And, and you can think of hoarding as just an exaggeration of that sort of sentimentality. Where do you begin? What happens in the very first session? Well, one of the things that we do early on is we, we, we help them come to an understanding of the nature of this phenomenon. We have a, a, a cognitive behavioral model that we work through uh, because in order for, for people with this problem to really change, particularly to change their attachments to objects, they have to understand how they got this way and why they are this way because we're asking them to give up their beliefs about possessions. And there's, there's no about, amount of convincing that we can do that will get people to give up those beliefs. So we've got, to, we've got to get them on board with thinking about this in a different way. And, and the best way to do that is to lay out a, an explanation of what this is all about. Uh, let me just run through the different features of this model. The first thing we talk about are the vulnerabilities that people have. People who develop hoarding tend to have certain kinds of characteristics, um, and those characteristics are the things we think make them vulnerable to the development of disorders. Some of them are biological. We know that there are certain special kinds of neurological mechanisms that are operating in hoarding. fMRI studies are suggesting there's a, cert a certain kind of circuitry that in some contexts is underactive. In other contexts, it's overactive. So there's something about the brain, is the, the way the brain is wired that makes this more uh, likely. The other thing we know is that there's a genetic component to this. This runs in families. It looks like as much as half of it may be genetically determined. Now, exactly what is genetically determined, we'll talk about it in a minute. So those are the biological vulnerabilities. In terms of other sorts of vulnerabilities, we see significant levels of depression in over half cases of hoarding. And so that kind of mood disruption is something that's also a vulnerability. Uh, and along with that, feelings of uh, self-worth uh, and helplessness are also sort of background characteristics. In addition to these vulnerabilities, there are certain kinds of information processing problems that we see in hoarding. And here's where, this is probably where the genetic connection comes in. 
uh, it's the way in which the brain functions, especially those executive control centers of the brain, seems to be a little bit different. And, and what I mean by that, the, the kinds of information processing deficits we see include problems with attention, a lot of attention deficit uh, disorder in hoarding, and even those people who, who might not reach criteria for adult ADHD often have a significant amount of, of attentional difficulty. And so that's one feature of this. Another feature of, the, uh, of attention that we see is quite unusual is, is almost the opposite problem. So when someone is, when someone's out somewhere and they see something they want to acquire, some object, what happens is that their attention is so narrowly riveted to that object that they forget about everything else in their life. They forget about the fact that they don't have room for this. They don't have money to buy it. They already have a half a dozen of these things and so forth. None of that information seems accessible to them. And all they're thinking about is how wonderful it'll be to have this object. So that kind of narrowing of focus uh, is sort of the opposite of this distractibility, but it, it, it plays in this disorder. Now, now this is a quite important piece of it because this tells us something about what we need to do in treatment. Um, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, just to give you another example of a cognitive processing problem, uh, Categorization is another one. Uh, categorization is, uh, you know, all of us live our lives categorically. So if we have an electricity bill, we, we put that bill in a category of other bills or electricity bills or something. But that category is one where we can find the category and then we search for the individual item in the category. But people who have hoarding problems tend to live their lives visually and spatially and not categorically. So they will put things in the middle of the room and try to remember where they are. So Irene, the main character in Stuff, for instance, if she gets an electricity bill, she puts it on the pile in her, in her uh, TV room a little over to the left. And now a month later when she needs to find it, she has to remember where it is in space. And, and so one of the things that we see with these folks is almost as though they have created a mental three-dimensional map in their head of this pile of stuff. And in that map is some sort of visual representation of everything in that pile. Now, this we think is the reason why once, when anyone goes into the home with someone with a hoarding problem and touches or moves anything, it's a great emotional assault on, on this person. And we think it's because if, if I have a three-dimensional map of everything in the room and someone comes in and moves stuff, then my map is destroyed. So it's the same kind of quality as if someone would come into your house and dump out your file cabinet in the middle of the room. It destroys their organizational scheme. So the, these are some of the information processing deficits. Well, other than having the map of what's in your room, what other, <laughs> am I revealing something about myself here? But what is the other way of viewing what's in your room, if not three-dimensional? It's a categorical. So everything goes in a category, and the category gets a location rather than each individual item. Oh, I see. So, so that's the difference. So there are other information processing gaps. I don't have time to go through them all, but memory is an issue. Perception, there, there, are, there, there is a, a very powerful kind of avoidance that goes on among people who hoard. So oftentimes we see what we call clutter blindness, 
What we mean by that is that when these people are at home by themselves, they don't notice the clutter. And they only notice it when someone else shows up. And when someone else shows up, then they notice that they feel bad and they, they experience the sense of shame. But if that person's no longer there, then they don't. A, a lot of these things go together to create a, a kind of over-complex thinking on the part of people who, who hoard. And that makes it difficult for them to make decisions. So one of the other information processing deficits we see is a problem with being able to decide about things. And this involves virtually anything, including what to order from a menu or or what to what clothes to put on in the morning. Those kinds of decisions take people who, who hoard a long time. So we've got the biological vulnerability, we have the information processing deficit. As you can see, this is this is a long process because we work through this with each person to get an idea of how they fit with each of these things. That was Dr. Randy Frost, and I'm Barbara Alexander. You can hear the complete interview with Dr. Frost and learn more about him at our website, www.ongoodauthority.com. You can hear many other interviews there as well. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.